those gestural qualities that printed page strips from language come back in the dark. And on the radio. We get knocked off when you want to continue, we can do it. Okay, sure. Yeah, great. Sounds good. All right. Hello, and welcome to The Massage, a series of conversations on culture and technology. I'm Andrew McLuhan, director of the McLuhan Institute. Today, we're speaking with Peter Hirschberg of San Francisco slash the Bay Area. Peter, thank you for joining us today. Boy, Andrew, it, it is a great pleasure to speak with you, uh, especially since I've had you on my show and you've spoken to us at Gray Area for hours this year. Right. <laughs> now, I... I wanted to ask, you know, when you ask people and they tell you they live in Toronto, half the time they actually live in the suburbs, Mississauga or Pickering. Do you live in San Francisco or do you live in the Bay Area? I do. I live in uh, San Francisco right now um, in the city. When I came out here years ago um, to work for Apple in Silicon Valley, um, back then, it never occurred to anybody to live in a city and commute to the suburbs to go to work for a tech company. <laughs> yeah. So I was in Palo Alto for a bunch of years. Um, and, and so a lot of people would say, but we knew they didn't live in the city unless they actually lived up here. And the connectivity between San Francisco and the Bay Area actually grew after the tech industry thing happened because San Francisco was not a, a tech innovation city until people wanted to move to cities and it took credit for Silicon Valley. Right. Oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I want to get into all of that. Um, it's always interesting to me how people end up where, where they are. Um, we were speaking a minute ago, um, and you said that your mom used to work for a TV station. Yeah. Um, first of all, I should point out, Andrew, that, um, your grandfather was just a remarkable influence on my life because I was introduced to McLuhan's work by Tony Schwartz, who was an associate and disciple of his. And we'll talk about Tony later, but I think it was probably, I was maybe a sophomore in high school. And the thing I've kind of realized is that everything I've done since has been some form of finding and unpacking and finding a use for some new medium. So uh, this is thrilling because, uh, you know, that stuff is just pivotal. Um, When when my mother, had been a psychiatric social worker. She got a psychiatric social work degree from the University of Chicago. I think this is something that made her a very good listener. And she was like a guidance counselor to anybody who came over to the house. Like people would come over from school and I'm like, are you here to play with me? It's like, no, we want to talk to your mom. Those skills, um, she stopped being a social worker when I was born, but then became um, a director of one of the first TV shows in Chicago. Um, and I would literally sit on her lap in the control room, like as a kid, as she called the show. But the traumatic part of my childhood was occasionally, since it was a kid's TV show, they would run out of children to put on the air because <laughs> they needed a child yeah. and they were not available. So they would put me on the air. And <laughs> what I didn't realize is I was up against child actors who knew how to be on the air in a ham and I had no idea what was going on. Um, I, I knew at age six that when I was so shy that the boom microphone had to break the wall and come into the frame, I knew I was doing something wrong. And <laughs> okay, so that, and I think that that is what started me 
being interested in communications technology and media, it was kind of traumatizing and I kind of overcompensated. But yeah, it started on her lap. That's that's kind of great that you got into things on the on the practical, on on the behind the scenes kind of end of things and um, and that continued through your work. You you said just a moment ago, my job at Apple was putting understanding media to use. And this is this is really what um, I'm hoping to get from some of these conversations is um, because you know my interest is in the practical things you can do with this kind of work over the the theoretical uh, thing. So it's it's really a, a privilege to to speak with you. If we go back to 1984 when I joined Apple, we knew personal computers were a thing. It wasn't exactly clear who they were a thing for and how many people would need them. You know, famously, there was the IBM quote that the world would need 10 computers or whatever. And when Eckert and Mockley <laughs> wrote their business plan for Univac, you know, they, in a classical sense, they put the new medium to the use of the old and the old was uh, the census, basically. That's why Hollerith invented the punch card machines. It was that, it was... Uh, the engineering problems that they built the first electronic computer for, for, you know, World War II and stuff. So I remember when I joined, um, there was this huge question, were personal computers a fad? And, and nobody knew, and I would be kept up at night worrying I'd made a bad decision. And there was a piece in the New York Times in 1984 called Finding Home Computer Uses. And it then listed the uses. It started with gaming, and then there were all these speculative uses, like, well, maybe you could use it for recipes or something. But nobody really knew, right? And so a lot of the, a lot of the work was a combination of watching what people did and doing more of that, and also trying to figure it out. It was clear very early on that this was a great education machine because it was infinitely patient. And kids loved that because, you know, especially kids in any kind of autistic spectrum, it's like, it, it, it just adored them. So, you know, we, we understand early on people were doing educational games and people got that. Um, you know, when you think of spreadsheets, these were an accident. Um, <clears throat> nobody at Apple or IBM conceived of, of a spreadsheet. That was Bricklin and Franklin on their own at MIT. Like, um, there's got to be a better way when I think they were in business school. So they came up with that. And surprisingly, VisiCalc was the killer app of the of the uh, Apple II, and then Lotus One Two Three became the killer app of IBM, and literally nobody saw it coming. But then that became the purpose of of the whole thing, um, and then this 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 continued. Uh, I mean, for example, early on, um, real men didn't use color 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 monitors were not for real people because you had to have a black and white monitor. Like so, we you had to explain to people this mouse interface thing was actually like not for babies, uh, and. Of course, then we get into the computer as a communications tool, then people really don't understand why, right? Well, today, the principal use of a computer is the internet and communications. That's like what they are. Well, you know, at first, why would you go online? Who would you talk to? And what was there anyway? So there's a whole history of stuff I was doing around online services. And then why would you need a local area network? Uh, uh, my first job in 1984 was um, was actually home banking. They, I had been put to work in the Apple II software department, which was basically, here's new applications, find use for them. Huh. Banks wanted to roll out modem home banking in 1984. You dial up, there's a 1200 baud line or a 300 baud line, and you pay your checks. 
it, no one kind of un understood the stuff, but the woman who was in charge of selling modems had a quota. So she's like, find out a use for the damn modem thing. Right? <laughs> then it turned out you could get banks to do a lot of the marketing and you could set up displays in the banks and put bus ads in New York. And, you know, but, and then later in my career, you know, after Apple, I was chairman of one of the first social media companies. It was a search engine called Technorati, right? Mm -hmm. So when, when social media started and it was blogs, this was before Facebook, before uh, Twitter and, and, and such, you'd write a blog. And the difference between that and the website is it issued an alert. It issued this real-time RSS alert so that if an event went on in the world, a blog issued an alert. And we understood that was a real-time thing that was different than just crawling websites. Um, but no, we couldn't even describe it to ourselves. Like we board members would get together and, you know, we were like the, the kid putting his hands on the elephant trying to figure it out. There was not a language to describe a thing that was real time and let you know what was going on, you know, and, you know, so we basically had to figure that stuff out in real time. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's fascinating to be on, on the ground floor of all of that and, and have a hand in discovering the use. Uh, and it's really interesting to hear how um, Apple understood that, that basic idea that we create technologies to solve uh, problems, but um, you know, don't generally discover what they're best suited for until after the fact. It's also worth pointing out that Apple misunderstood a lot of things. There were like things that got close. For example, Steve Jobs, you remember Apple was the alternative company and, and IBM was kind of the enemy. And yeah. therefore IBM customers were bad for Apple because if we got into an account with IBM, we'd get thrown out. Remember kind of in the early days back when that was the case. Uh -huh. So Steve Jobs once said, never trust a computer you can't pick up, which was basically a cut at IT people. <laughs> and so Apple developed an enormous bias against connecting its computers to other computer systems because why would you need them? We're our own world. Uh, and and this, this meant it was incredibly countercultural within the company uh, to convince people we should be connecting to anything on the outside. Additionally, right. computer communications early on was incredibly difficult. It looked like Unix commands. We had a retail channel. Nobody knew how to sell the stuff. It was complex. And besides, no one needed it. So there was a lot, we spent a lot of time internally convincing our team, our sales force and the employees that email was cool, messaging was cool. This was actually a useful thing. And once we kind of, we had to sell everybody internally before we could turn around and tell the world that, wow. that this was a good thing. Well, you managed it somehow. Well, yeah, I, you know, I left. So you may remember Steve, things were bad before they were good. Uh, I showed up and then Steve got, Jobs got fired the following year. Oh. And I, I was there for nine years. So they were okay. By the time I left, like nine or so, year, so years into it, Apple was in that place when it was falling apart. There wasn't a lot of leadership. It wasn't doing anything innovative. Um, and then Steve came back and, you know, did an amazing job of not just fixing the computer business, but understanding that these could be applied in entirely new ways to other businesses. It was the most unlikely thing that Apple would even enter something other than, than computing, much less that it would walk into something like music that had an mm -hmm. entire array of lawyers and an industry protecting it from anybody else making money on it. 
and Steve took that over. And it, it's, it's interesting also because the music industry was blindsided by MP3. So there was this crisis. There was all this free music running around and Steve said, I'll help you get paid for it. But of course he took 30 or 40%. Uh, <laughs> and it, it was his genius over and over again to figure out that ecosystem and that use. Yeah. A remarkable story, really. The quite unlikely comeback. Oh, yeah. And by the way, like I, uh, that's one comeback I didn't make money on because when I left Apple, um, the last thing I wanted to do was make Apple software because like it was kind of an uphill climb. And, you know, I was there getting all sorts of companies to build stuff and we'd done some remarkable things, but I started a Windows software company um, early on. And then I was, remember having lunch with um, one of the top Apple analysts on Wall Street with a friend. And he had all this, he said, oh, Apple's going to be great. They're such a cool consumer company. They'll enter multiple categories and have multiple growth. And it's like, why do you think they'll do that? How could they? It just was completely unlikely. Huh. Well, those are the best stories, aren't they? I mean, and even if you go forward, like what's the purpose of an Apple watch? Well, obviously a watch is to tell time, but if we're all walking around, frankly, with phones, that becomes obsolete. You know, the real purpose of an Apple Watch increasingly is it's an interface with your body, right? It's the real-time thing that's understanding heart rate and blood oxygen and soon blood glucose and then fitness. And then at the same time, it's a consumer device. It's actually a sandbox for the FDA to do trials of, you know, CPR things and heart, heart stuff that doc go to doctors. And so it just turns out it's a lens into a whole new, like we didn't know our, well, we know that our bodies, medias are the extensions of man, but that's what the Apple Watch seems to be really about. It's, it's fascinating. Um, I, have a, I have actually my grandfather's analog watch. It's an automatic self-winding watch. And I, I pull it out, well, back when you went into classrooms, I would pull it out to, to school-age children to show them you know, what, where watches came from, these highly sophisticated uh, mechanical things of, of days gone by and it's it's all well they are artifacts uh hey, <laughs> hard to imagine by the way here's something fascinating the other day my apple watch wasn't charged and i had to go out and do something so fine i went into the watch drawer and there were all of these you know watches that a little battery in them the quartz watches yeah <laughs> but of course i had not put one of these on in a year because of the pandemic and like of the 12 watches 12 batteries were dead. I mean, they were all like swatches and whatever, but there was no working watch because nobody had gotten at a battery. I did have a automatic watch that you wind up. Yeah. And that's what I used for a day until I got the Apple watch charged. Oh, good. Excellent. Yeah. Um, they're, they're a fun thing. I like, you know what, frankly, mine runs a few minutes slow. It needs to be repaired, but I still wear it every day um, for that, that connection to, I guess, to my ancestors, but also to the the, the time's gone by. Um, Peter, you mentioned that you met Tony Schwartz in high school. Yeah. How did that come about? Yeah. And let's also talk a little about who Tony Schwartz is. Um, uh, Tony was an incredible innovator in sound design and in understanding how to apply a lot of the ideas that McLuhan had to advertising uh, to be more effective. Uh, you know, he yeah. wrote a book called The Responsive Chord in which he basically said, you know, the purpose of communications isn't to throw new stuff at you. It's to understand what's going on in you and evoke that and, and, and respond to that. And um, 
So Tony was in New York and had this wonderful studio on the West side. He was an agoraphobic, so he seldom left. Um, and when I was in high school, he had this really cool class that he would teach people where you'd go to his studio and he'd assign you projects, like go produce an audio tape of this or do interviews or analyze this political commercial he was working on or read right. McLuhan and let's come and talk to it. So <clears throat> that's how I met him. And, you know, he would give me all sorts of interesting assignments. Uh, uh, Tony was known very early on for bringing um, real conversation, authentic voices uh, into, into media. It, it used to be if you did a commercial and you needed a kid, it, a woman would just imitate a kid's voice. Right. Um, Tony would run around with portable tape recorders and record the sounds of New York. And he had a weekly show on WNYC. Um, a lot of people called him a sound effects man. He said, no, I'm more interested in the effects of sound. Um, at one point, the United Jewish Appeals was doing a documentary series on the Jews of the world. So they needed a, they needed a field correspondent to go to cities and go see the Jewish things. And they asked Tony to do it. He was busy, but gave me the assignment. And so I was told go to, you know, go to Ratner's Delicatessen and listen to the people who came over on the boat years ago. Go to the Bavacha. Go find the, you know, the portions of, of uh, Brooklyn where the Hasidic are. Go to the Black Synagogue. Uh, I kind of got my Jewish education because I was getting live sound on it and listening for for Tony. Um, he was uh, he was doing a lot of political commercials then. You know, he famously did the 1964 Lyndon Johnson commercial, the days yeah. of the atomic bomb, yeah. right? And the, the whole premise behind that commercial was he didn't want to tell people something. He wanted to do research and understand what was in people's minds that they didn't know was there, that if he evoked it, would give you a strong response, yeah. um, which by the way, is to some extent what the bots do on Facebook these days that turn you into an anti-vaxxer, right? They find the thing that is your personal emotional response and they feed you more of that. Right. Tony would do this. Research showed that in the back of people's minds, uh, Barry Goldwater said he was gonna use an atomic bomb in Vietnam. It wasn't part of the conversation, but it was in there. That commercial, the, the Daisy, the kid, the atomic bomb evoked that was very powerful. So Tony was doing all these political commercials and I would be exposed to them. And then um, the Watergate scandal was going on at the time. Um, the Watergate committee was ha happening and learning from Tony all these wonderful techniques of editing and, and you know, playing with speech. I re-edited the speech that Nixon gave when Agnew resigned to make it a Nixon admission, a Nixon resignation and admission of his guilt. So I played, I played this to Tony. And he sent it right down to the Watergate committee. It's like everybody's wondering if Nixon doctored the tapes. This came from Peter, who's 14. He doctored the tapes last night. <laughs> That's amazing. What, what uh, Watergate, what year was this? 74? Nixon Four. resigned in 74, so it was probably 73. Okay. Tony did a wonderful commercial. He, he, did, he did a lot of work for Coca-Cola. And he took the real thing commercial. Yeah. And interspliced, um, interspliced uh, Nixon, I am not a crook. How could it have happened with It's the Real Thing and <laughs> turned it into a very rich production uh, that made fun of Nixon and completely picked up on the zeitgeist of the era. That, um, that's amazing. 
I thought I, I thought, you know, while we're talking about Tony, who created a lot of sound, I have some examples of some things here that I thought would be kind of fun to listen to. It's great. Uh, um, okay, so of course, McLuhan talks a lot about, well, of course, he even talks about television, right? His whole notion is TV isn't there. Your brain is filling in the analog thing, right? It's like there's this line that's flying by at any given time. All that's on a screen is a dot, but your, your, your mind fills in the difference, right? Exactly. And, um, he, and the same thing is true with speech. If I say the word word, by the time I get to the D, the W-O is not there, but you fill it in. Hmm. He realized that you could use that realization to redo the way you do speech to turn an ordinary prosaic thing that I'm saying now into something more poetic. It sounds like this. You're still hearing natural speech. The words themselves are not speeded up. The timbre is not raised. Nothing is artificial. It's all quite real. And considering that we've spent all our lives listening to real words, listening to the sound of sense. This is marvelous because it doesn't change the sound. It accelerates it, but the words are the, the same. The are the same. The way of speaking is the, the same. The approach to a subject is the same. But it flows over and upon itself, in and around itself, with sounds that are completely familiar to us. This That's is the normal, natural speech. Completely familiar, but melted into itself to produce a rate of absorption which is incredible. Which seems to have a much more penetrating effect. It is a melding of the natural and the technical to the familiar. Tony called that mnemonic speech. Wow. You're still hearing that. Oh, hold on a second. Let me get rid of that. Yes. In that, had you heard that before? No, I haven't. It's, it's bizarre. Yeah. Um, it was useful because it, 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 it created, it, it compressed time. You know, you sometimes hear yeah. a commercial and they have to get the frying print and the yeah. ad and they just speed it up. Well, you don't have to speed it up. People fill it in. You know what's missing. Because it filled it in, um, you rejected it less. You have less time to think about it because yeah. your mind, and you know, this is part of McLuhan's concept that you want to turn the audience into a workforce. Yeah. And this was an example of that cognitively. That's remarkable. I mean, it, that's a bizarre, uh, <laughs> strange experience. There you go. How about that? Um, by the way, here we are in you know what 2021 in the golden era of podcasting. This America Life and Radio Lab has spawned a new industry, and no one's doing this right. And this this is this is you could probably build a piece of software that did this automatically. But just it's a lost technique. Well, it's kind of the jump cut of the audio world, isn't it? Yep. Yeah, interesting. I know some people um, some people listen to podcasts and things speeded up uh, one and a half times. And that's yeah. kind of one way to kind of do it, but um, an audio jump cut, uh, man, it's 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 act it's brilliant because it's so uh, it's so involving to yeah, you. Exactly, it's in, and it's and its purpose is less for speed, although commercially it's great for that because their time's expensive. Yeah, uh, but it also turns it into that thing that's more poetic. Right, it turns something ordinary into something extraordinary. That's uh, really interesting. You know, another thing that Tony really picked up on is so when McLuhan talks about we're retribalizing, right? Because we're going back to the more oral, and um, you know, then and then and then McLuhan also points out that you know tribal isn't necessarily good because um, you know tribes are in each other's throats. They're not necessarily that rational. Mm -hmm. uh, Tony used that because he said if, if in tribes, 
shame is a very important thing, right? In, 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 in tribes, you can be shamed if you do something wrong. So if you publicly call out a leader in front of his people, um, it could be very powerful. Uh-huh. Here's an example of that. So this is probably 1984, what, four or five. Um, the AIDS epidemic is going on in New York. Mayor Koch has closed the bathhouses and Tony wants to get smoking banned in public places, which today is common, but back then was not, and restaurants didn't like it. Here's the ad that Tony made. Mayor Koch, the mayor of New York, made a statement about New York City's bathhouses being closed down due to AIDS. He said, this is a matter that involves a lot of money to these people. They are selling death, places where death can be distributed. We don't want that to go on. But I wonder, Mayor Koch, did you ever stop to think that you could make the same statement about cigarette companies? They are selling death. So why does the city allow cigarettes to be advertised on city bus shelters? They are selling death. Why does the city allow cigarettes to be sold on public property? They are selling death. Why does the city allow cigarettes to be advertised in the city radio station's guide? They are selling death. And why does the city allow cigarettes to be advertised on subway trains, buses, and city licensed taxi cabs? They are selling death. Mayor Koch, cigarette companies are selling death. We don't want that to go on. And like you, we don't want that to go on. Paid for by Doc, representing thousands of physicians who really do care. Remarkable. Um, yeah, Tony was, I mean, several things are going on there. First of all, he wrote an ad that was aimed at one guy. It was yeah. aimed at the mayor. And, and, and But of course, its dynamic was everybody heard it. Now, this technique has been picked up. This is precisely what the Lincoln Project was doing when they would buy an ad aimed at President Trump, run it on Fox News in D.C., and drive him nuts. <laughs> you know, famously, the, 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 they famously, the, 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 uh, Lincoln famously ran an ad in, that basically told Trump that, the, that, that Mike Pence was going to have to affirm that Joe Biden was president, and boy, was that disloyal. And what the Lincoln Project realized was that, that probably Trump didn't know that there was this constitutional thing that had to happen with counting the votes, and they were in the ad, and we know everything that happened after that. Um, wow. And, um, okay, so then when you do ads, when you do things like that, once you know you're doing that, you actually don't even have to run it on the air. You just have to threaten it. I'm going to play you another ad, and then I think we're going to hear from, from Tony what happened. Would you believe it? John Jay College of Criminal Justice, known as one of the top schools of criminology in the world, is being held hostage to such a degree that the school sent a notice to all faculty, staff, and students telling them to walk in a group, walk on the north side of the street, cross directly in front of the college. If you're coming from the east, take 10th Avenue. If you're asked for money or other items, give it to your assailants. All this because a few hoodlums on their block have mugged teachers, robbed and knifed students, beat up employees, and murdered neighbors. Teachers are afraid. Students are afraid. Employees are afraid. Visitors are afraid. The school has failed to provide safety, and they've not been able to get help from the city. Mayor Koch, Governor Carey, can you help? 
brought to you by frightened students, teachers, and employees of John Jay College of Criminal Justice. Well, I made that spot. I didn't even run it on the radio. Let me tell you what I did with it. I, I put it on an answering machine that I had, and I had a phone number that I used for such things as this. I called the New York Times. That's, it's in my local paper. I called the city desk and told them to call this number. They called the number, and they called the local police chief. And he called the number, and he heard it. An hour later, he was in my office saying, what would you like me to do? It's unbelievable. Wow. So there you have it. I mean, this was, this was um, right. And, and there were several things that were going on there. You, you heard a little bit of mnemonics, mnemonic speech there. Mm -hmm. um, it was the shame stuff. It was incredibly targeted advertising. He also understood that if you built an advertisement that was based on what was going on that day, um, if it was something that was current, people would pay more attention. Now, of course, that's exactly what goes on today. Ads are timed to the news cycle. This stuff was incredibly innovative um, in the 1970s. Well, the, what, a, what a brilliant move to design an ad campaign and then not spend a single cent on actual advertisement of it. That's, that's amazing. And it's, it's no doubt, I'm looking at a copy here of Tony Schwartz's book, Media, the Second God. And on the cover, it says, the man Marshall McLuhan called the communications guru of the electronic age. Um, and it's, it's obvious why. Uh, you know, I have reason to thank Tony Schwartz because um, back in uh, 67, 68, uh, when Marshall had the, the, the Albert Schweitzer chair for the humanities at Fordham University, um, he was already friends with Tony and Tony did a lot of recording. Yeah. Um, of Marshall and and because of that um, those recordings are out there and they're they're a real treasure trove of of um, discussion and lectures and um, the kind of uh, the kind of things you don't you don't hear a lot because um, well it's different these days when you know everything is is potentially recorded but back then people didn't just record everything the way Tony did um, and, you know, I haven't listened to a lot of that. As you know, he donated that to the Library of Congress. And yeah. a gentleman that you told me about has put a lot of that up on the Internet. Yeah. Um, and as you listen to that, what, what are some of the insights that because I really need to download and listen to that. And I know you're about to teach another course at Gray Area. It <laughs> might be fun to make some of this those conversations part of the of the class. Are there are there pointers to particular conversations or insights that you get in listening to those that are particularly interesting and go beyond kind of all the written stuff you have in the archive? Um, well, I mean, the thing to note is that the, the written McLuhan is different from the conversational McLuhan. Mm -hmm. um, Marshall was a writer and um, he, he had a very, um, a very deep understanding of how to communicate using different media. Um, so the, the McLuhan you see in writing in his books, uh, in essays, is different from the McLuhan you hear in conversation, mm -hmm. uh, in casual conversation or in lectures. Um, the, the great thing about the, the recordings that are available, and if you search for, you know, Marsha McLuhan, Tony Schwartz recordings, you'll find them. Um, the person who put them up online, and it's probably illegally, um, also put uh, 
a bit of a, a breakdown of everything that's on the various recordings. So you can, you can check that out and that's um, actually really handy. So uh, thanks to him for that, I guess. Um, yeah, I'm really excited to be doing uh, the second part of Understanding Media Intensive. Are you going to join us? Yep. Good. Yeah. You know, it was, it was, it was during the pandemic. What'll be interesting is we live in a very different media environment, right? During the pandemic, you couldn't go out. <laughs> so like every Saturday when you couldn't go out, I would do it. It'd be interesting to see, are you also planning it for Saturdays? Is it the same kind of thing? Yep, exactly. It's going yeah. to be, um, it was Saturday afternoons before. It's going to be um, nine to noon uh, Pacific. I'm very interested to see what's going to happen to our collective attentions Yeah. when we no longer have to be in a room next to a screen. <laughs> um, you know, one of the reasons that what we're doing right now works so well is since everyone's at home, anyone can get anyone for anyone's podcast and get really good people because, <laughs> you know, we're not running around. We're going to lose something when that happens. Yeah, we are. Uh, funnily enough, one person who was um, in the first part of the course uh, in San Francisco, actually, Freddie, um, he told me after the fact that he was taking it, he was driving down to the, uh, to the harbor, he's in San Francisco, um, or to the ocean, and, and listening to the class while looking out across the bay, um, which, which I thought was really neat. Uh, but you're right, circumstances um, obviously are, are very different and are going to be different going forward. There's going to be, um, you know, the pendulum has really swung one way and it's going to swing back another way and uh, probably go back and forth a little bit before we figure out what normal is again. Um, in the meantime, uh, I think we're really making the most of, of these situations. I'm looking for another, uh, let's see if it's here, another, another Tony Schwartz for you. Uh, did I lose my one? Maybe I did. Okay, well, I'll play you another one in a moment. Sure. Um, uh, in fact, let me let me just look for this thing here. I'll play you. Th th this was um, this is a very interesting one. Uh, I'll play you two here. Um, okay. So here's one he did. You know, so oftentimes politicians will react to something. Uh, I mean, a very good example of this stuff that is going on right now is um, this whole defund the police thing. How do you distinguish between a bad actor and then changing all of the rules for a police department or a fire department, um, right? Because politicians, and by the way, you saw this in Minneapolis this summer, in the heat of all the George Floyd stuff, it's like defund the police. Well, since then they realized, no, actually you need the police, but you need to train people. All right. So that, that type of problem was, was also a problem in the 1970s. And here's something Tony did about it. Recently, some members of the New York City Police Department were indicted for corruption. Only 17 officers out of a total of 28,000 have been indicted. But Commissioner Ward thinks that's enough to change the rules for everybody. He wants every cop on the force to rotate from place to place every three years. 
Well, you know, the police department isn't the only place where there's been isolated instances of corruption. Take the politicians in Queens and the Bronx, for example. Does this mean we should rotate politicians too? Okay, Mayor Koch, for the next three years, you're going to be mayor of Syracuse. And Mayor Young, instead of Syracuse, you'll be mayor of New York for a while. And Commissioner Ward, you'll be water commissioner. No one is for corruption. And we agree that guilty cops should be punished. But that doesn't mean that thousands of innocent cops should be punished too, does it? Brought to you by the Patrolman's Benevolent Association. Well, I got the Patrolman's Benevolent Association agreeable to running that on the air, and they were going to, but I thought I'd do something before they did that. And I called uh, the mayor's office and played it to uh, his deputy, who I had spoken to about the buildings across the street from John Jay and so forth. And uh, he, uh, he said, well, I can't use the words he said. He said, holy something or other. Uh, and uh, uh, the plan was dropped. So that commercial was never run. Part of Tony's thinking in all of this was that um, any nonprofit or activist group could apply these techniques. You know, well before we all had social media, his point was, if you understood the individual that you were aiming at, if you constructed media in the way that it was something that people generally agreed with, like you, you could, that ad only works if most people would agree with the sentiment, yeah. you could make a pretty inexpensive media buy. And he would compare it to other techniques in the day. If you wanted to have a protest, the amount it actually call, cost to organize a protest, distribute posters, and it generally was much more expensive than buying an ad, right? So he was, he was attempting to get more people to use these techniques in these guerrilla media. Of course, today we live in a world when these are, these are completely accessible to everybody and on some level are overused because we're so polarized, but that's what it looked like at the beginning. That's amazing. Um, I imagine Mayor Koch was, was not a big fan of Tony Schwartz. <laughs> Oh, actually, um, the TV show, uh, um, David Hoffman did a, did a program on guerrilla media and Ed Koch recorded the opening of it. He goes, um, I'm here to record the opening of a show about, uh, about um, Tony Schwartz, who's the most genius political. Tony Schwartz has been in politics and understood it longer than I have, said Mayor Koch. He said, and I've, I've now allied with Tony Schwartz to prevent smoking in public spaces. No, the mayor... Uh, the mayor acknowledged he was on the wrong side of his of the wrong side of some issues with him, but he was deeply respectful of what Tony was doing, and they became good friends. Oh, that's lovely, uh, and I think we need more of that in this world. It seems hard to find these days that kind of uh, mutual respect. It's it's much easier to just be polarized, polarized. Yeah, and the the um, right there's a, there's a nugget in. There's a nugget in the stuff that Tony did, which was to try to bake, try to try to build your communications on something that you think there's general agreement in in the population, right? That's what the atom bomb commercial was, and that's what this was. There's probably a lot less of that now. Yeah. And I started thinking about that because in the 2016 cycle, I was thinking about applying this technique. Uh, to political stuff because, you, you know, Trump was doing all these crazy things. But it became increasingly clear 
that wouldn't work in the sense that explaining to someone who thought that the stuff that Trump was doing was ridiculous, that's preaching to the choir. And there was this really interesting dynamic that telling the Trump people that stuff got them wound up and go, yeah, we want more of that, right? So actually finding that thing for which there was common ground uh, is tougher now. It probably exists in things that, for example, unite cultural and economic issues. Like I'm sure stuff that would explain why new green jobs would put the coal miners back to work or put the inner city people back to work uh, and create you know, energy independence. In other words, if you somehow to combine um, things that both sides like that resolve to something, uh, the, that thinking probably is a good path for persuasion today. Mm. Yeah, what do you think, if Tony were still around, what do you think he would be doing today? Boy, that's so, that's great. He, he, you, you know, I, I, he, like McLuhan, was so interested in media ecology that he would probably be, I mean, he'd probably be a really interesting critic of the, of a lot of the misuse of social media. And my guess is he would be at the leading edge of trying to figure out how causes could utilize this stuff to more effectively get get through to people. And I think the other issue here also is the thing that Tony did, which was really understand you and get inside of you. You know, this is what Facebook does at scale, right? With all of this A-B testing and figuring out what works. And and so, you know, Tony would probably both have interesting things to say about that. And he'd probably be at the leading edge of shared communications around it. You know, the shame thing, the shame thing works best when you know it's shared communications, everybody's hearing it. A lot of the trolling on Facebook is designed to go pick your unique particular thing that, that bugs you. And my guess is that Tony would try to be doing things at the community level that moved us. Hmm. Well, I've got an example of something he did. Okay that fits with this. So he and Mayor Koch, of course, became collaborators. And Tony, in addition to his commercial stuff, was obviously doing cause stuff, like you heard the the police stuff and the um, gun stuff and such. Um, Fire safety was very important to him. And and one of the issues that turns out that, that fire departments know there's one technique above others that if a fire breaks out, will save lives. But the other problem is when a fire breaks out, you're not rational, like you're just, (laughs) You're not going back to what somebody told you. So the question was, how do you burn something into somebody's brain uh, so that it sits there as metaphorically speaking, automatic imprint? It's just there. Okay, here's what he came. Oops, let me just switch to this other screen. And here's what he came up with. Uh, Screen to this. Here we go. A fire breaks out on the first floor of a two-family house. Door. The woman quickly leaves to call the fire department. Door. And two people die upstairs, overcome by smoke. Door. A man smoking in bed starts a fire. 
the door. Leaves the bedroom, rushes to a phone. The door. And before the fire department gets there. The door. The rest of his house burns down. The door. Is there one single act that could have been done? Close the door. To help prevent this needless loss of life and property. Close the door. What should these people have done? Close the door. Do you know that a door is one of the best pieces of firefighting and life-saving equipment? Close the door. And if you leave a room that is on fire. Close the door. If you simply close the door. Close the door. It will help stop the fire and smoke from spreading too quickly. Close the door. This life-saving information is brought to you by this station and the New York City Fire Department. Close the door, please. Mayor Con- Wow. I mean, nice. ah, so good. And, you know, here's here's where one of the places where, where Marshall McLuhan and Tony Schwartz overlap is that those techniques are, are just as as usable today as they were then. Yeah. Um, if not more so, um, because our, our world has just exploded, and uh, you know this acoustic space is is bigger than it ever was. Um, wow, you just you can't help but be captivated by by that by that piece of audio. Yeah. You know, and he was doing uh, purchased media. You know, I was thinking about Tony recently. So, because in all the political campaigns, I keep thinking how to apply it. And you know, one is he did stuff on radio. Uh, we know today to target and get through to opinion leaders, you have to buy Fox News or MSNBC because they're going to be there. Um, we we listened to less. We probably listened to fewer ads on radio. You know, back then everybody just listened to young kids listen to music. You know, rock radio. Older people listen to middle of the road radio, and you know, business people listen to the news. Um, but today, when you think about all of the advertising on podcasts, it's really monochromatic. It's basically back to the 1930s. It's the podcast host telling you how wonderful it would be if you signed up for this, you know, website building tool or I don't know, some cooking thing. Right. But it's literally the announcer telling you authentically why you should buy this product, which is just exactly what people did on the radio in the 1930s and the 40s. Yeah, you're um, right. And I mean, and, and that's because most people figure there's no artistry in commercials because they suck. My <laughs> guess is that another thing Tony would be doing today <laughs> is actually applying these wonderful techniques to, to what sponsors want to do, which is, you know, make the sponsor bit as artistic and cool as the show. Huh. That's a very that's a very handy tip. And actually, I was going to ask. Um, I know this is going to be a really difficult question to answer, um, but what what's what is the top thing, or what are the top things maybe you you took away? Because obviously, the things you learned with Tony have, have stuck with you. Um, if there's a number one thing, what might it be? Yeah, it's it's really the responsive cord. It's that the purpose. It's that communications is not the transportation model. The transportation model is I have a message and I will transport it to you. Now, this is baked into what McLuhan said because he pointed out, well, that, you know, um, that the medium is the message and that like the particular piece of content is relevant, but that's not the point. And, and Tony's point was the actual piece of content, you're not shipping it, you're doing a set of things that evoke it, right? And so that that's valuable in very many things like, um, uh, if, if you're, I mean, 
if you're selling, if you're doing any kind of sales thing, the question is, how do you get inside the customer to understand what they're thinking about? And then what do you do to trigger feelings about that? And, you know, at Apple, I would do all sorts of stuff that we had to sell like to the IT audience who weren't that friendly with us early on. So I would try to think through and be empathetic with them. Even when I give talks today, I'll do a lot of stuff that makes fun of the tech industry or write uh, funny songs about or whatever. But you kind of know, you kind of know what the common thing is on people's minds. Um, in fact, I think McLuhan talked about humor, right? The whole point, a joke is a grievance, right? It's a grievance and it works because you know that stuff's in somebody's mind. So you're evoking it and that's what people are laughing about. That's the number one thing that I think that Tony did. And I think it, it's like a thing I use, like, could you use that in a relationship? You use that professionally. So that's the number one thing. Yes. Um, Marshall made great use of humor. Um, you know, we talk about defusing a situation generally with humor or humor as an icebreaker. Uh, Marshall very much weaponized it. He's did a lot in his talks. And mm. if you pay attention, you'll notice he, he starts off with a joke or two. Um, and he uses it to loosen up the crowd a bit, to put them at ease. Uh, then he, he delves into whatever topic. And if, if he feels like he's losing them, if it's getting too quiet out there, he'll just start to throw out jokes and to, to diffuse the situation again um, and flip back and forth like that. But of course, he also used jokes as a way of understanding um, what's happening, you know, societally in a larger in a larger sense. And he was always asking people. I'm sure he asked Tony every time he talked to him. You know, heard any good jokes lately? Mm. Um, if he was talking to somebody uh, who had just been to Russia, he would say, "What are, what are the jokes they're they're telling over there?" Um, and so this was one of the way he used um, the arts. Um, as a way of, of getting uh, up-to-date information on, on what's happening. Um, you know, Peter, we're, we're going to run out of time before I've even moved on past the first two things I was going to ask you about. So um, hopefully we can, we can come back and, and talk again sometime. Um, clearly, on this topic, there's an endless amount to cover. Uh, yeah. You spent 12 weeks on the first front portion <laughs> of understanding media. And, um, you know, if there's one thing we've learned, our, our careers and our history is basically uh, some form of unpacking all of that stuff. And, um, mm -hmm. and it's accelerating. So, um, oh, my God, there's so much more to do. I know. Peter, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks, and I'll see you on the internet. <laughs> we will. We'll see you in class. <laughs>